Hey, while you're busy applauding, um, could, I, could I ask you to, to do that one more time? Just because Brian and Curtis, who typically are in charge of worship, are not here today because they're sick. And this group of people stepped up and made it possible for us to have worship despite the fact that Brian and Curtis aren't here. So maybe, maybe you want to try that one time. Thank you so, so much. Um, I want to remind you that uh, uh, this book on James, this study on James, which would allow you to do some review and, and remembering of what we discovered, written by Brian McKenzie, uh, is, is available back there. If you ordered one, please uh, step up there and, and pay for it, or if you haven't paid for it. And uh, you know, we'll make sure that you get a copy. You can take a copy home with you. And if you haven't ordered one but would like one, we even have extra copies that are available. So feel free to do that. You don't want to miss out on this opportunity to learn about using the book of James as you coach your kids, as you coach the folks at work. It's a powerful tool. This morning, as you can see, we'll be continuing. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to... As soon as I'm done here, I'm going to go running out. Uh, I, I, I don't mean to do that. It's just that I, I have to get to the airport. I have a 4 o'clock flight out of St. Louis to get down to Florida to attend Green Window Ministries board meetings. Uh, Green Window Ministries is an organization that we support as a church. Some of your money goes to them. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be participating with them. As, uh, uh, but, but pray that I get to the airport in time. That. That feels important to me somehow. This morning we'll be continuing our studies in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace. And we won't actually run into those words until 2 Timothy, but, uh, but that's the title. This is part two and entitled Advance God's Work by Faith. Last week we, looked, we introduced Paul's first letter to Timothy by getting acquainted with Timothy himself. And we did that by looking at the, through the lens of a story from Acts chapter 16 that recounts for us the day that Paul met Timothy in the city of Lystra. Paul knew an older woman named Lois and Eunice, her daughter, and, and he knew that they had grown up Jewish, over, but over time they had believed in Jesus and, 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 and believed that he was their Messiah and their Savior. Paul knew both of these women to be not only believers, but also women of true and deep faith. Uh, the faith that was deep within them came to the surface. Eunice, the daughter, as we mentioned last week, grew up Jewish, but when it came time to get married, she didn't marry within her faith, but chose instead to marry a man who was Greek, quite possibly from Greece. We don't know how that went down in the synagogue or how the, you know, the leaders in the synagogue looked at that, but... We do know that Eunice's son, Timothy, was born, and they didn't follow the usual Jewish traditions that, that would have drawn him into Judaism. We don't know if Timothy's father was a follower of Jesus. We only know that Timothy's father did not convert to Judaism when he met and married Eunice. So Eunice had grown up, in Jewish, grown up Jewish and had married outside her faith, and we expect that Eunice probably talked to Timothy, her son, about what she believed, but, but we know for sure that Timothy wasn't brought up Jewish. We also know that somewhere in the process, Lois, the grandmother, Eunice, the mother, and Timothy, the son, 
all heard the good news about Jesus. And we also know from 2 Timothy chapter 1 that Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandma and mom, both believed apparently before Timothy believed. They had trusted Christ before Timothy did. So we know that Lois and Eunice believed before Timothy believed, but we don't know uh, how or when all of that happened. We don't have that history for us in the book of Acts. But Paul gives us a pretty significant hint as to when all that happened because Paul called Timothy my true son in the faith. You remember we looked at that closely last week. And I'm inclined to think that, what, that Paul means not only that he discipled Timothy, but that Timothy also was likely born again through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. That's what that phrase has typically, has traditionally come to mean. When you talk about someone being your, your own son or daughter in the faith, you're talking about someone that you led to Christ and, by God's grace, had some part in discipling. But whether or not that's accurate in the case of Paul and Timothy, I have to tell you that, that I just love the warmth with which this letter from Paul uh, uh, to Timothy begins. Paul's about to say some really hard things to Timothy, and I, I, I've promised you, you need to buckle your seatbelts when you sit down as we open the word together in Timothy, because there are bumpy parts. There's going to be turbulence as we go. Paul's about to say some really hard things to Timothy, but right out of the gate, Paul wants Timothy to know that everything that he's about to say to Timothy will come from a man who loves Timothy like a father loves his own son. And I think we can take comfort from that because Paul isn't going to say anything to us this year that he wouldn't say to his own son. And that'll draw us into a kind of intimacy with the Apostle Paul that we don't normally find in his letters, uh, his general letters to churches. Now, Paul's one of my heroes, so I can tell you that I really treasure these letters he wrote to Timothy. Because like any father that's worth his salt, Paul wants his son, Timothy, to succeed in life. And we have a front row seat to the conversation that's about to happen between Paul and Timothy, these two men, one older and experienced and the other young and energetic. Paul is wise enough to know uh, and, and to recognize the potential in Timothy. And Timothy is wise enough to want to be molded by the Apostle Paul. And we should point out that, that Paul is going to train Timothy to do what Paul did initially, but he's not going to train him to do what, what Paul's not going to train Timothy to do what Paul did ultimately. Paul's going to train Timothy to shine in areas where Paul himself did not shine. And in the end, Timothy's going to be able to do things that Paul was not well-equipped to do. I know that sounds odd when we're talking about the Apostle Paul. He's, he's an apostle, not a, not, he's not Superman. Uh, he wasn't able to do everything as well, and there were things that Timothy ended up being able to do better than the Apostle Paul did. And over time, we'll see that that's the true essence of discipleship. We'll see that as we disciple someone, God doesn't ask us to make carbon copies of ourselves as we relate to that person, as we, as we uh, disciple them. Instead of making carbon copies of ourselves, he asks us to understand the person that we're discipling so that we can lead them to understand the gifts that the Spirit of God has given them. We need to help them to recognize their gifts so that they can use their spiritual gifts to their full potential so that they can become the man or woman that God has designed them to be. In the past, we've had parenting workshops here. Uh, the 31 Memos uh, is something that you may remember from years and years ago where 
talking about maybe getting back there at some point. But uh, in the past, we've had parenting workshops here at the Potter's House, and we've looked closely at something that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start children off the way they should go, and even when they're old, they'll not turn from it. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they're old, they won't turn from it. And we've consistently made the point when we've looked at that verse relative to parenting that how you interpret this verse is going to be based largely with the emphasis that you place on the words when you read it. If you read it as start children off in the way they should go, (laughs) and even when they're old, they'll not depart from it, that will lead you to a very different parenting style than if you read it as start children off in the way they should go, And even when they're old, they won't depart from it. It's much easier to start a child off in the way that he should go because to do that, you don't have to take the time to really get to know your child. You don't have to take any time at all, in fact. You just have to make sure that your child knows the rules of the house and keeps them. If that's the track that you're on with your child in your home, then you have a rules-driven home. And you have no real promise that your child will ever get on board with the rules that you've made and continue to hold on to them for the rest of his life. But if you make the decision to start your child off in the way he or she should go, if that's where your emphasis is, then you're going to have to invest time in getting to know your child. That's just the way it works. So that you can help them to discover how God has designed them. And if you'll do that right from the beginning, then when they're old, they won't walk away from that. If you do that then, then you'll have moved from a rules-driven home to a relationship-driven home. You don't build strength and character into your children by making rules for them to keep. You build strength and character into your children by developing your relationship with them. And I know First Timothy is not a seminar on parenting, but it is a seminar on discipleship. And you might be surprised as we go to discover how akin parenting and discipleship actually are. After all, Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And that makes their relationship sound more like a parent-child relationship than a rabbi-disciple kind of relationship. So I suppose it's appropriate at this point to get back to the question of what role Paul played in Timothy's decision to trust Christ. Did Paul have anything to do with that? And you probably already know that I'm going to get there (laughs) with a story from God's Word. You could have guessed that. But before we go there, let's uh, let's stand together and read aloud the passage that we'll be unpacking this morning. Stand with me, if you will, as we read 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 through 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Thank you. You can take your seats once again confident in the fact that when we read God's word, he always blesses us with his truth. We always learn truth when we read and study God's Word. The story that I want to tell you this morning comes from the book of Acts, just like the story from last week. However, the story that I want to tell you this morning comes from something that happened before Paul invited Timothy to join him in ministry. This precedes that story. 
But I think that you'll see that there's a connection between the story from last week and the one that I've planned to tell you today. And with that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 14. You may remember that at the end of chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Pisidia and, uh, and had been forced to leave there. You can see that up on the top left, kind of in the center up there. There's two Antiochs. Antioch and Pisidia is the one up there in the center. Uh, and they'd been forced to leave there because of the persecution that the Jewish leaders stirred up. Paul and Barnabas then traveled as far as Iconium, and when they got there, they went immediately to the synagogue and began preaching. Uh, they were so passionate and effective in their preaching and teaching that a large number of people believed, both from among the Jews who had been attending the synagogue and among the Gentiles who were meeting with them in and around the synagogue. There were, however, some Jews who wanted nothing to do with the gospel and the good news about Jesus that Paul and Barnabas had preached, and, and they very quickly stirred up the Gentiles who had been attending the synagogue and leaning into Judaism. Because of what the Jews were saying, the, the Gentiles grew bitter toward Paul and Barnabas and others there who, who had believed the message, the good news about Jesus, this message that Paul preached. And this opposition only served to strengthen Paul and Barnabas' resolve to preach and teach the word there in Iconium. The two men relied heavily on the Lord and continued to graciously confirm their message by allowing them to perform miracles. That's what God did. He gave them the ability to perform miracles so that they could confirm their message to the Jews. People of Iconium were divided. Some of them sided with the Jews and some sided with Paul and Barnabas. And the Jews and, and Gentiles then both went to their separate leaderships and tried to get the authorities to take action against Paul and Barnabas as they preached and teached the gospel. There were plans to stone them to death, and that rumor began to circulate around because that was the way they were going to deal with that. And when Paul and Barnabas heard about the, their plan to stone them to death, they left Iconium, and they headed to a nearby town. They continued to preach the good news in that new town and in the surrounding countryside. You would have thought they'd have taken a break. They didn't. While they were there in that new town, Paul noticed a man who was paralyzed and had been that way since, since birth. He'd been unable to walk since he was born. This man was listening very intently to what Paul was teaching and believed what Paul was saying. And Paul looked closely at this guy sitting in the audience. I, I don't know how much public speaking you've done, but when you're up in front of a group, you can find those people. You can see those people who are with you as you go. And Paul saw that this guy was with him. He knew that his faith was strong. So Paul caught his eye and, and said in a loud voice, Stand up! Get on your feet! He was lying there on, the, uh, on, a, on a mat, most likely, and as soon as Paul said that, the man leaped right, leapt right up and began to walk, which, of course, was surprising to everybody. Well, of course, the crowds noticed right away what Paul had done, and they began shouting in their own language, which Paul didn't understand, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. They're here in our midst. It's pretty clear that from what's about to happen that Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand what the people were shouting and saying and so excited about because they didn't speak that language. In any event, the people started calling, calling Barnabas Zeus, the leader of the Greek gods, uh, the king of the Greek gods. And they called Paul Hermes 
who was the messenger of the gods. Now, I, I know you think Paul was in charge, and I, I kind of do too, but Paul was doing all the talking, so they figured he was Hermes, and he was speaking on behalf of Zeus. Uh, Paul was doing all that talk. Well, you know Paul. Anyway, one of the men in the crowd was the priest of Zeus, and he was listening to what Paul had to say, and the temple of Zeus was just outside the city, so the priest hurried back to the temple and grabbed two garlands made of flowers and two oxen and brought them back with him into the, into the place where Paul was speaking. He was planning to offer the oxen as a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. So this isn't going at all like Paul had planned. But Paul still doesn't know it because he doesn't understand what the people are saying to each other. Paul and Barnabas finally figured out what was going on and they, they reacted immediately. They tore their robes in order to show how serious this thing was. And, and, they, and, and then they ran into the crowd shouting, Guys! Guys! Whoa! Whoa! Hey! Hey! Time out! Time out! Why? Are you doing this? We're men just like you, and we've been preaching to you about this very stuff. We've been telling you that you should turn away from your dead gods and turn instead to the true living God. After all, it's the living God that made the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. And in the past, he hasn't punished you for your sin of sacrificing to other gods. In fact, he's given you the rain and, and caused your crops to grow, even though you've not been worshiping him. Paul stayed at it. He kept shouting and, and raising his voice like that and confronting them. But the people were still determined to sacrifice the oxen to them. And in the end, Paul and Barnabas were only just able to persuade them. And we get the picture from the story, the way it's told, that, that, the, that the priest might have had his knife right to the jugular of the, of the ox. And when Paul finally said, no, don't do that. And then didn't make the sacrifice to them. Right after this, the Jews who had made trouble in Antioch and Iconium, you know, the places where Paul had been before, that's when they decided to show up. There in that town where all that happened. They won over the crowds and incited them to stone Paul to death. That was the plan all along for, in Iconium, and they didn't get it done there. And so they stoned Paul to death and dragged his dead body out of the city. They left Paul in that heap there thinking that he was dead. The other Jesus followers were just standing around Paul's body in total shock. Everyone thought that Paul was dead until, well, he stood up and walked back into the city under his own power, which was pretty convincing if you think about it. The next day, they left for the city of Derby with Barnabas, and that's the story from God's Word. I have to admit that I was keeping something from you as I told that story. I told you that in that town where Paul was ministering, he preached the good news about Jesus, he performed a miracle, and in the end he was executed by the Jews and the Gentiles who had started a riot. Then, after Paul was stoned to death, they dragged his dead body out of the city and left it in a crumpled heap there in the dust. Then, the Jesus followers gathered around Paul and stood there and uh, in total shock that they had just lost the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine the devastation? And then <laughs> Paul got up and walked back into the city under his own power. And the next day left for Derby with Barnabas. And the city where all that drama and intrigue took place. The city where Paul preached the good news and performed that miracle. The city, the city where Paul was stoned to death and then came back from the dead. All those things happened in the city of 
Dun, dun, dun. Lystra. All happened in Lystra. And before you have time to be disappointed over not making a connection, I can tell you that that happened the first time Paul visited Lystra. And the second time Paul visited Lystra, he met a grandma named Lois and a mother named Eunice and Eunice's young son named Timothy. Now remember, Paul called Timothy his true son in the faith. And I can't prove it, but I'm personally convinced that Timothy was there when Paul performed that miracle. I'm convinced that Timothy was there when Paul was executed and his body was dragged out of the city. I'm convinced that Timothy stood with the other Jesus followers in total shock at Paul's death. And I'm convinced that Timothy was there when Paul stood up and walked back into the city. But more important than any of those those things, I'm convinced that Timothy was there when the whole incident began and that he heard Paul clearly preach the good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. I'm convinced that Timothy heard Paul and believed and so it was absolutely natural for Paul to ask Timothy to plan to join him in his ministry travels as, as Paul undertook the responsibility of discipling Timothy. And because of all that, it makes perfect sense to me that Paul would call Timothy his true son in the faith. And beyond that, since Timothy was Paul's true son in the faith, it makes sense to me that Paul would want what was best for Timothy, especially when it came to ministry. It also makes sense that Paul would want to point Timothy in the right direction, the direction that would bring the best results to Timothy's ministry as Timothy partnered with Paul and became Paul's co-worker in planting churches across Asia and Europe. Now remember, Paul and Silas had met Timothy in Lystra on the day when they were in Lystra the second time. And just like Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas had been sent out by the church at Antioch, that Antioch down there on the bottom. And they had, they had begun to gather co-workers then as they went. Paul and Silas, like Paul and Barnabas, had been sent out by the church at Antioch. What Paul had going on at this point is what we would call, a, I don't know, a parachurch organization, a mission organization of, of sorts. There are people who are working with Paul because Paul is, has managed to pass along his vision and his heart for reaching the unreached. And if this is a mission organization, then I can assure you that there is one thing that Paul is concerned above all others as he and his co-workers preached a message of the gospel all over the world. Paul wants and even demands that the gospel be preached accurately. And because of that, he wants Timothy's message to be clear. Paul's message was all about Jesus and his finished work. And Paul was determined to keep that message pure and accurate and intact everywhere he went. You may remember from when we were, our time in, in, the, in Acts back in 2015 that the church began in Jerusalem the day that God's Spirit made his home in the hearts of all true believers in Jesus. Jesus had pointed out beforehand that the Spirit would come and even told his followers what to do when the Spirit arrived. Look at what it says in Acts 1, 4 to 8. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking him to teach a prophecy conference. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised his followers that a day would come when the Spirit of God would be poured into the lives of the Jesus followers. And on that day, they would receive power. And as we studied the book of Acts back then, we took note of the fact that that Jesus said that he wanted them to use the power that they received from the Spirit in a particular way. He wanted them to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. That's what the power of the Spirit is for in your life, to be witnesses of Jesus and what Jesus has done for you, his finished work there on Calvary. There may be other ways that God enables you to use the power that he's given you, but we're not going to insist on that. We're only going to insist that we have opportunities to preach the gospel. At the same time, we know that the believers use the the power of the Spirit for other things as well. You may remember from the story earlier that as part of his preaching in Lystra, Paul used the Spirit's power to perform a miracle, to heal a man who was not able to walk. The Jews in the audience immediately identified that miracle as a sign that God was backing Paul's message. They caught on right away. The Gentiles, on the other hand, (laughs) really didn't catch on right away, did they? They immediately thought that Paul and Silas were Greek gods and, and sent for some bulls to sacrifice to them. And Paul picked up on the confusion at some point, and, and, and he and Silas shouted to the crowd that they didn't want none of their bulbs and, and then told them to stop. We don't want, stop, just stop. And as we pointed out when we studied Acts, from that time onward, Paul never again performed a miracle in front of an audience that was predominantly Gentile. Never again did he do that. He had learned that on behalf of all of those of us who who preach the gospel in places where the gospel has not been preached. And in 1 Corinthians 1.22, he gave the reason for that. The Jews demand a sign, and the Greeks look for wisdom. The Jews demand a sign. Paul knew that people were saved by understanding and believing the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul would not allow anything to confuse that simple message, even something as amazing as performing a miracle. I say that because when Paul picked up that performing a miracle confused the simple message of the gospel for the Gentiles, he stopped performing miracles when his audience were predominantly Gentiles. So what do we have so far? Well, we know that Paul and Silas were sent out by the church at Antioch to preach the good news about Jesus where the good news had never been preached. And last week, we heard the story about the day that Paul asked Timothy to join him in his, uh, in his travels as the good news is taken, as Paul takes the good news to places that it, where the gospel had not yet been preached. Paul invited Timothy to join him because the believers, the churches in Lystra and Iconium, recommended Timothy to Paul. As, and they, they encouraged him to take him on as a co-worker. And that means that Paul and Silas were sent out by the church at Antioch, and Timothy was sent out by the churches at Lystra and Iconium. 
They're the ones that stood behind Timothy going out in ministry. Just like we have people that we support who are not from our church, but we also have people like Steve and Jen who are from our church that we support as well. So Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the other people that are working with Paul had the shared goal of preaching a clear message. If you're going to work with the Apostle Paul, you're going to preach a clear message or you're not going to work with the Apostle Paul. The clear message of the gospel as they traveled. But you may also remember from when we studied Acts that the Sanhedrin had no intention of, of allowing Paul and his, his cronies to talk about Jesus because as far as they were concerned, Jesus was dead, right? They killed him. So Jesus is dead, and so he couldn't have been the Messiah or the Savior. So the Sanhedrin sent out missionaries of their own and had them follow up on Paul's ministry. The Sanhedrin sent out men who taught that people became part of God's kingdom by becoming a Jew and by keeping the law, which was not the same as Paul's message at all. That means that the teachers of the law, who were known as Judaizers, and who had been sent out by the Sanhedrin, were in direct opposition to Paul and his co-workers. By now, you probably know Paul well enough to know that he wasn't about to take that opposition sitting down. He just wasn't that kind of guy. And so you won't be surprised to hear that Paul took on the Judaizers everywhere they were active. I had a friend several years ago when I was in Bible college who was in the habit of following uh, cult people as they went from house to house in a neighborhood. When they would go and knock on a door, he would follow them up to that door and he would go in with them. And while they told their story about how it all works, he would keep saying, they're telling you lies. This isn't true. Jesus actually is God. He died for you. And, and then finally the, cult, the guys from the cult would give up and they'd go to the next house and he'd go right there with them until they finally left the neighborhood. He didn't sit down. He, he opposed that, that, that falsehood. You'll probably also not be surprised to hear that Paul consistently commissioned his co-workers to confront the Judaizers whenever they ran into them. And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It wasn't about keeping the law or becoming Jewish. It was about believing that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day. So if you look at that verse, you can see that the time that Paul wrote this first letter to Timothy, he speaks of a time when, when Timothy was in Ephesus. He, went, he and Timothy were there together, and that Ephesus was in Asia. And Paul was in Macedonia. He left to Ephesus, left Timothy there, and, and went to to Europe in, in Macedonia. So there's a time in Paul's ministry when, when Paul went from Ephesus to Macedonia and told Timothy to stay there in Ephesus. Now we can't find a record, an exact record of this in the book of Acts because Paul did a bunch of traveling and, and accomplished a bunch of stuff that isn't all outlined for us in Acts. But we do know that a lot of time passed between when Timothy first joined Paul and when Paul asked Timothy to stay there in Ephesus. The references to Ephesus all happen in Acts chapter 19. Timothy stayed in Ephesus while Paul went to Macedonia. And as we get further along in Paul's first letter to Timothy, we'll discover that early on, Paul and Timothy spent lots of time together. 
lots of time together, as Paul discipled Timothy into the ministry. But later on, Paul and Timothy, uh, Paul was in the habit of, of sending Timothy to a place, to another place, or, or leaving him in a place while he, Paul, continued to preach the gospel. Timothy went there to strengthen the church that existed. Paul preached the gospel in a new place. And this, uh, this you stay in Ephesus while I go to Macedonia thing that Paul is talking about here is an example of that. Paul was going to Macedonia to preach the gospel clearly to people who had not heard the gospel, and he wanted Timothy to stay in Ephesus to make sure that they kept the message of the gospel clear. He wanted that to be maintained all the way along. And he asked Timothy to stay in Ephesus to make sure that the clear message that had been preached there remained clear as time went on. And we know from Acts what Paul's talking about here. Paul had preached a clear gospel while he was in Ephesus. But then the Judaizers showed up. And instead of preaching the gospel as the means to becoming part of God's kingdom, they preached keeping the law as the means to becoming part of God's kingdom. And in response to that, Paul told Timothy, are you ready for this? Paul told Timothy to stay in Ephesus and command, not, if, not persuade or influence, command the Judaizers to stop teaching false doctrine. And I know that we live in a world of political correctness. And, and we live in a world of you do you and I'll do me. That's just kind of the thing these days. We live in a world where we're supposed to be tolerant enough to say, you, you live by your truth and I'll live by mine. But I want us all to recognize that that's not the tack that Paul took when it came to the gospel. Not at all. When it came to the truth from God's word. Paul does not tell Timothy that it's okay to let the Judaizers live by their truth as long as Timothy lives by his truth. Paul tells him to command the Judaizers not to teach their false doctrine anymore. And don't think that Paul wasn't confronted with the problem of political correctness. I'm sure he never used the word. It's a more recent thing. But we know that Paul was, was repeatedly beaten and flogged and imprisoned because he would not add keeping the law to his message. He refused to add that to his message, even though it would have been politically correct to do so. In fact, Paul would not add keeping the law to his message, and because of that, he was eventually taken outside the wall of the city of Rome and beheaded. And that was all because he would not back down on the simplicity of the message of the gospel. Now listen. Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And because of that, you don't go, if you believe that, you don't have to go to hell when you're dead. But there's more to the fruit of the gospel than that. The message of the gospel is also that Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures so that you can become part of God's kingdom while you're still alive. The gospel is not about something that happens after you're dead. The fruit, the results of the gospel don't just kick in after we die. The fruit, the results of the gospel are ours while we're still alive. So that being the case... There's a couple of questions for us this morning. How can I make sure that I won't go to hell when I die? I think that's an important question. How can I make sure that I won't go to hell when I die? 
And how can I make sure that I'm part of God's kingdom while I'm still alive? Those may be the two most important questions we ever ask one another. Stay with me here. Does either dying and going to heaven or living as part of God's kingdom become sure for me by keeping the law or doing good works? Does it? That was rousing. After all the time that we've spent in Galatians and Romans and Hebrews and all over the New Testament, you need to take your stand and shout no. So let me ask you again. Do we get to heaven by keeping the law? Thank you. Do we become part of God's kingdom by doing good works? No. Absolutely not. Then how do we get to heaven and become part of God's kingdom? How does that happen? Anybody? 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 By faith. By believing. By believing that Jesus died for us died for me according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It is the most precious message that has ever been committed to people and trusted to people. Look at what Paul wrote to the church at, at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Here it is. Here's my message. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That simple message is the message that we should be preaching whenever we run into someone who is preaching a different message because that happens. We need to find the courage to command them to stop teaching false doctrine because God has no intention of advancing his kingdom by asking us to keep the law or do good works because God's kingdom is not advanced by our keeping the law or by doing good works. God's kingdom is advanced by our believing the gospel, period. End of sentence. When we preach the law as the means of becoming part of God's kingdom, or when we allow others to preach the law as the means of becoming God, part of God's kingdom, we open the door to controversial speculations that will never advance God's kingdom. And that's because God's kingdom is never advanced by keeping the law God's kingdom is always and only advanced by faith, by believing the simple message of the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about when he adds the rest of verse 4 to what he's already said to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach, teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things provoke controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. 
Paul says that God's work is advanced by faith, and you will not find a single place in Paul's writings where he says that God's work is advanced by keeping the law. And based on this passage this morning, if I ever stand before you and tell you that God's kingdom is advanced by keeping the law or doing good works, then please command me to sit down and shut up. And I know we're not supposed to say, shut up. But I'm giving you permission to me to, sit, to say that to me if I ever distort the simple message of the gospel in your hearing, please. Now, Paul isn't saying any of this because he means to be mean or ugly or intolerant. Paul says what he says here because he means to keep the gospel pure for generations to come. And, and, and I, for one, have to say that I'm truly thankful to the Apostle Paul that he was willing to even lay down his life to protect the purity of the message of the gospel. And if it weren't for the Apostle Paul, there's no telling what our message would look like in the midst of the mess of political correctness. So Paul didn't say what he said to be mean or ugly or intolerant. In fact, Paul had a very different goal when he told Timothy to protect the message of the gospel. And if you want to know what Paul's real goal was, you're going to have to come back next week. In the meantime, let me close by insisting that we all make sure that we have the gospel straight in our thinking. And let's make sure that when we share the gospel, we share it clearly and purely as the message that says Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay? <laughs> okay? Okay. Okay, then. In closing, let me read the passage for this morning to you one more time. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Will you stand with me? In the presence. Father and our God, we thank you today for the truth that comes from your word. We thank you today for this precious message. Paul reminded us that we have a treasure in these earthen vessels. These dry, brittle, breakable bodies that we have contain the most precious message that has ever been preached, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And God, our hope for the future, our hope for heaven, and our hope for becoming part of your kingdom while we're still alive are based entirely on that this morning. So thank you for your finished work on Calvary. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen and amen. So we're going to go out those doors in a little bit here. We've huddled up. We've come up with a plan. We're going to be more devoted to the gospel, the pure and simple message of the gospel than we've ever been. And we're not only going to hold it in our hearts, we're going to share it with other people and we're going to share it accurately so that they can come to a knowledge of the truth so that they don't have to go to hell when they die. But even more importantly, they can become part of God's kingdom while they're still alive. Let's go do that. Let's get that done here in our community. If I'm the coach and you're the team and we've huddled up, then all that's left is for me to say, ready? ready. Go get him, Potter's house. <laughs>